Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. In this podcast, congressional expert Sarah Bender explains why the Senate filibuster is a historical mistake. She talks about her research on Congress's relationship with the Federal Reserve and addresses whether Congress is more polarized today than it has been in the past. Bender, a senior fellow in governance studies, is also a professor of political science at George Washington University. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. Let's start with you and your background. Some political scientists look at the presidency, some look at campaign finance reform, some look at the judiciary. For your career here at Brookings, you've looked at Congress. Why Congress? What about Congress fascinates you? Well, uh, right after college, uh, I went, came, moved to D.C., and I landed a job on Capitol Hill uh, working for a remarkable member of Congress. And you don't often hear remarkable and member of Congress in the same sentence. But Lee Hamilton from southern Indiana, who'd been there even before I had been born, <laughs> had been on the Hill. Uh, and he was a really quite a fascinating person to watch, and it really sort of turned me on to the whole question about the politics of Congress, the politics of the institution, how majorities and minorities treat each other. That sent me to grad school, and the rest has just been following an institution that it's, it, there's nothing Congress does that I don't find either interesting or entertaining. There's always something going on across town that's really pretty riveting to me. Now and historically, right? Because you've studied a lot of congressional mm-hmm. history. For sure. Uh, there's always, first of all, there's always entertaining things going on in Congress's past. And I always think it's a little helpful to try to use congressional history to put into perspective what we're learning about or hearing about today. Right? This is sort of natural inclination to say, well, this is unprecedented, or the filibuster of these nominees is unprecedented, or this level of gridlock is unprecedented. Um, I think it's helpful to try to see what is new. Is this time really different? And if so, why? And if not, what are the hopes? How do they get out of the debacle in the last time? Well, speaking of the filibuster, I understand that one of your first projects at Brookings was about the politics and the history of the Senate filibuster. Mm -hmm. And it's been in and out of the news lately. It's especially in the news now when we see that some of uh, President Obama's nominees for uh, the powerful U.S. Appeals Court for the District of Columbia are being blocked. But uh, a question a lot of people always have is, I don't see the filibuster. They're not up there talking and reading out of the phone book. So can you talk to that? What is the modern filibuster? uh, And why don't senators actually do what you've called a talking filibuster? Well, it's a great question, and it does cause a lot of people to scratch their heads, right? Why is it that we see majorities claim there are lots of filibusters, and yet if you watch Turned on C-SPAN, you see a lot of classical music and a lot of quorum calls, but not a lot of filibustering or talking, trying to talk a bill to death. Um, As it turns out, we had plenty of talking filibusters in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, and probably through the civil rights filibusters of the early 1950s and into the 1960s. But as The federal government grew in the middle of the 20th century and majorities got busier, right? We had the Great Society. We had Medicare, Medicaid, transportation bills, education bills, right? All sorts of agenda items uh, pressing up uh, on the Senate floor and majority leaders discovered they really didn't have the time to wait out their colleagues who might want to talk a bill to death. 
right? The way to defeat a filibuster in the old days was simply which party had more stamina, stamina, which was going to outlast the other side. But if you are a majority leader and you want to um, uh, create the Environmental Protection Agency and you want to do the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and you want tax reform and you want immigration reform, right? You don't have the time to wait out your colleagues on the floor. And so majority leaders in the 70s and 80s, they adapted their strategies. And really what we now have is what we call tracking, majority leader would go to the floor. I ask the unanimous consent to proceed. A minority says object. Well, in the old days, we might force the minority to, to make a case. Uh, in the contemporary Senate, this, the majority leader just moves on, right? He tracks that filibuster. And so no need to stand up. And in fact, all you have to do is tell the leader, if you bring up that bill on the floor, I'm going to object. You just have to threaten the filibuster. <laughs> and so you can imagine, right, why would a minority ever bothered to prepare a real talking filibuster. Majorities have too much on their plates. They just want to move on. That's a, that's a really interesting view and different from what a lot of people might think about how to diminish the value of the filibuster is to actually make them talk, talk. For, for 24 hours. I, I know um, Senator Rand Paul did a talking filibuster in March against the CIA nominee. Did that have any effect mm -hmm. on that nomination? Well, I think a lot of us were up to 2 a.m. waiting and watching and <laughs> having a very good time watching Rand Paul actually talk. It turns out it was kind of a pseudo filibuster because he didn't have the votes and to stop uh, what the majority was going to do on the confirmation. But he believed in something and he took to the floor and he put the energy into and I think it's kind of raised his respect level across the mm -hmm. institution, right? Even uh, Dick Durbin, the Democrat uh, assistant leader, came to the floor and engaged him in a colloquy at, at midnight, right? Um, I think there's a sense that, wow, if you really put senators' feet to the fire, maybe we'd see less obstruction and maybe we would learn something, right? Maybe the public's views would be changed by having those debates. It turns out there get to be some sort of parliamentary reasons why this is, but it's much harder for on the majority for talking filibuster than a minority because you could imagine in the minority, we could think of it as kind of tag team. So Rand Paul might come out and talk for an hour and then he might ask a question and hand off to Mike Lee for an hour and Mitch McConnell might show up and then they go back and get a lot of sleep. But for the majority, right, they're the ones, they got to maintain a quorum on the floor. They need 51 senators at all time. Otherwise, Senate has to close shop and then the filibusters win. So majorities don't actually want to spend all night on the Senate floor and they don't want to force talking filibusters because it's inconvenient for the majority, right? Not just a tag team. You need, you need a majority of the Senate to show up. So uh, the, the incentives are misaligned, right? And in the end, everybody seems to be better off. The majority is better off with threatened filibusters in a sick way, and the minority is better off because they don't have to, <laughs> to sleep on the cots and spend all night in the Senate. Of course, the outcome is not much gets done. <laughs> They're better off, but then they need 60 votes to invoke what's it's called cloture to proceed to the actual vote, uh, right? Yes. And so this is a solution of sorts for the majorities uh, in the Senate to say, well, we're not going to have real filibusters. We, we don't want that. We're going to have a mechanism for cutting off debate. But as you said, 60, right? That's many more than we typically have, say, today's Democratic majorities, 55 Democratic senators. And on any controversial issue, how are you going to get five Republicans to cross the aisle and vice versa when the parties are switched? And so getting to 60 can be quite tough for majorities in these polarized uh, times. Now, you've taken a deep dive into the history of the Senate filibuster. Uh, and in fact, you've testified to the Senate Rules Committee itself telling them about the history. And one of the points you made, which I think is fascinating, is that the modern filibuster is actually a mistake. 
Can you explain uh, why? Sure. And senators don't like to be told this, <laughs> but that's okay. So let's just go backwards to 1789. Brand to. new House and Senate, right? Weather's a little – it's warm. It's April. <laughs> Things aren't so bad in Washington. Uh, a little swampy. Uh, 1789, they each – the Constitution, the brand new Constitution says each chamber shall write their own rules. And it's sort of odd, but they both start with the same rule book. Very little differences between House and Senate rules. And both rule books had what we call today in the House, we call it a previous question motion. And all that means is it's a motion on the books that says a majority can decide when to cut off debate. The Senate, in its early years, it wasn't really using the rule. No one really knew how to use it. And 1805 comes along and Aaron Burr is the vice president. Um, and as vice president, you preside over the Senate. And Aaron Burr, however, has just murdered Alexander Hamilton in a duel over the uh, cliffs of New Jersey. And Aaron Burr's back in the Senate. And he's giving his goodbye advice, his goodbye speech. And he's praising the Senate. And then he says, what a great Senate would have a clean rule book. And yours is a mess. And Aaron Burr, right, this sort of traitor to the U.S., gives this list of rules that need to be cleaned up. And he isolates. He puts his finger on the previous question motion. And he says, this one's got other uses. No one uses it. Clean it up. 1806, Senate comes in, time to clean the rule book, drops the previous question motion. Why is that significant? Well, eventually, in decades later, when the parties in the, start to go to battle over slavery and the admission of states to the Union, they realize, a the majority realizes, this is Henry Clay realizes and Stephen Douglas realize, we don't have a rule that allows us to cut off debate. And without that rule, you have filibusters. And it took until 1917 for the Senate to get its act in order to create the cloture rule that we talked about before, right, that allows a supermajority to cut off debate. And so I think if you put all this together and you think about why the Senate has a filibuster, I really think it's a mistake, right? I think that it was the unintended consequence of cleaning up the rule book and dispensing with a rule that at the time they hadn't used and didn't really know what its importance was. If you look at the House today, right, they – it's a bigger chamber, right? And they figured out pretty early on, hey, this is a pretty neat rule. We can get a lot done. And so I, I think it's fair to say the filibuster is probably a mistake, even if senators have come to embrace it and think it's part of the constitutional fabric of the chamber. This podcast is like a master class in political science. Thank you. <laughs> let's, uh, let's switch to more modern history. We're about at the 100th anniversary, as you know, of the creation of the Federal Reserve System. And I understand that you're working on a project about Congress and the Fed. We have colleagues at Brookings, economists, who are looking at the Fed from the point of view of monetary policy and the quantitative easing. And you're a political scientist. So how do you approach this topic? Well, political scientists have not spent a lot of time thinking about the Federal Reserve as a political institution. There have been some isolated excellent studies in the late 70s and early 80s. But by and large, we've let economists uh, teach us all we uh, think we want to know about the Fed. Um, but the Fed is, of course, a creature of the Senate. It is uh, of the Congress, the, as Paul Volcker, the chair, or former chair of the Fed, said. Congress created the Fed, and Congress can uncreate us. Which, what does he mean? Right, all the powers of the Fed, its goals, its mandates, all of that comes from a, an act of Congress. And so, I think we need to think and step back a little bit to try to understand why and when does Congress empower the Fed. Why in the when does Congress try to take those powers away? And so how is it that we ended up with this extraordinarily powerful, right? It's the central economic policymaker in the government. And yet we think of it as this independent institution. Right. 
but they are always at threat of Congress coming in, as we saw, for instance, with the Dodd-Frank and clipping its wings, making it harder to do uh, emergency lending in the wake of a financial crisis or making it harder for the Fed to choose the head of the reserve banks uh, around the country. So Congress has an impact on the powers of the Fed, and I'd like to spend some time figuring out why and when does Congress get involved to try to get a better handle on what the prospects are for the future future hundred years of the Fed. So, how do you do that? What are your what's your methodology? Um, what data do you have? So it turns out the the Fed history is a little a little messy, and so one approach is historical, which is to say, what are the junctures or critical points over the Fed's history at which Congress has gotten involved in giving more power to the Fed or taking power away? And how do we account for the votes that members of Congress take? So at the one hand, we're looking at sort of the structure of the Fed. Why and when does the structure change? The organization change? The powers change? But we, the other angle here is from the individual member of Congress. What drives their votes? And as best I can tell so far is there's a certain amount of the, what we call the electoral connection, right? That members mm -hmm. think about monetary policy in electoral terms. So if we're thinking about where should we put the Federal Reserve Banks? Well, the local economies of states really affect how members think about uh, how many reserve banks there should be or how many members should sit on the Federal Open Market Committee, right? Should that be broad? distribution or should just be a narrow group of elite bankers. Part of this is historical. Part of it is more recent. How do we account for the audit the Fed movement, right? Who supports that? Who votes against it? And with what consequence uh, for the Fed and its powers? Audit the Fed was uh, either started by or it's deeply uh, led by the Pauls, the uh, Representative Paul, perhaps Senator Paul. Yes. It's a Ron Rand Paul family affair. Okay. Uh, they are both deeply uh, concerned about the powers of the Federal Reserve and deeply concerned about trying to impose more transparency on the institution to have a better sense of how monetary policy gets made. Well, I was surprised to learn that the deliberations of the Federal Open Market Committee, which sets interest rates among other actions, are closed for five years. years. Well, for a long time, time before the 1980s, early 1990s, there were – the Fed denied there were any transcripts. Uh, so the move in the early 90s to make uh, available the transcripts uh, and now they've made them for earlier decades as well really was sort of eye-opening uh, to see what's going on inside the FOMC. But as you said, actually the ones we really want to see are the most recent years as the Fed struggled with how to respond to the financial crisis. Now, from the Fed's perspective, there's good reasons not to have that level of transparency, right? The, the question is, if members of the FOMC, the Board of Governors or these Federal Reserve presidents, if they knew that the public, journalists and members of Congress would be reading what they deliberated over in just a month or in just a year, would that inhibit the type of hard, tough choices that we expect members of the Fed to make? Of course, we don't. No, we don't have a good counterfactual, right? They haven't offered us transcripts. <laughs> um, and we're beginning to see the types of deliberations that go on in 2007, right? We have those transcripts. And we're beginning to see quite a bit that the, the Fed is very aware of what Congress is doing or not doing. And at least reading between the lines in the transcripts, it does seem that they are very worried about not upsetting uh, the members of Congress who oversee them. It seems to me that uh, – 
least judging by the Greenspan era, the transcripts would possibly be very opaque, as he was. And he, uh, perhaps more than any other Fed leader, is, is kind of the sine qua non of Fed chairman over the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting, certainly the minutes, which are sort of capsule summaries that come out now three weeks after the meeting, mm-hmm. meetings, the, the, the minutes are opaque. And it turns out that once you get into the transcripts that produce those minutes, the members of the FOMC, they talk to each other, well, how will this be treated in the minutes? <laughs> right? They are very aware of how they're presented to the public at large. You know, it's hard to know the the tape recorder stops when they go to lunch, right? And so it's possible that even the five-year lag before we see the transcripts, it's possible that that level of transparency has pushed the key decisions into phone calls and into the lunchtime conversations. That's not subject to the transcript. But of course, that's kind of a dilemma methodologically for political scientists because I don't want to make decisions based on what I can see. I really need to know what I can't see. And in the Fed, they don't as you said, they're a little opaque, and when they do leave footprints, you know there aren't a, there aren't a lot of them, um, which has made this much harder than say studying Congress, right? Where roll call votes, I can get them back to 1789 at the <laughs> at the click of my computer. So it's methodologically challenging, but I think it's somewhat interesting given the importance of the Fed to the state of the economy. Sure, you've written that and I'll quote: "Partisan differences over monetary policy are particularly polarized today." Unquote. So what are some of these differences and are there any areas of agreement mm-hmm. between Democrats and Republicans about Fed reform and monetary policy? policy? So one thing the parties disagree with are, is the mandate of the Fed. Right? And the current mandate, which was set in 1977, we call it the dual mandate. And what that simply means is Congress and the president have given to the Fed two general goals or mandates you shall pursue price stability, that is low inflation, Mm -hmm. and you shall pursue maximum employment, right? You want to reduce unemployment. Now, Republicans and Democrats disagree quite a bit about whether both of those should be uh, important mandates for the Fed. And Democrats, when they – they were the ones who pushed for the unemployment part of the mandate in the 70s. And I think they would be quite resistant to ever allowing Congress to go to what we call a single mandate for the Fed. For the Republicans on their point, uh, their argument of late has been that only inflation should matter and thus we should do away with the dual mandate. Now, from the Democrats' perspective, this might be an occasion where gridlock is good. Mm. It's, it's hard, I'm hard-pressed to see Congress and the president ever agreeing to move to a single mandate unless we have overwhelming Republican majorities with filibuster-proof um, Senate. So that's certainly sort of a, a basic core disagreement. What should the Fed be doing right? where the parties disagree about it? I'd say on other issues on different types of transparency, there's been a little more agreement between the parties, certainly between – Uh, very conservative members of the Republican Party and very liberal members of the Democratic Party. There was quite a lot of agreement on the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform on the question of uh, requiring the Fed to make public who it's giving all its emergency loans to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Dodd-Frank included quite a number of transparency disclosures uh, required of the Fed going backwards in time and going forwards in time. So there's been a certain amount of agreement on certain types of transparency from members of Congress and what they think the Fed should be releasing. I feel like uh, there is an undercurrent in the conservative movement 
that is against the mere existence of the Federal Reserve, against a, a central bank as antithetical to the Constitution, and the same people who oppose direct election of senators, if you will. Um, do you see that as, as coming into the political discourse? Um, so my sense is that the end the Fed, right, which was the term given by Ron Paul uh, when he ran uh, for the president at, well, he was a House member. My sense is that the end the Fed movement, at least temporarily, may have peaked, right, that without Ron Paul as its standard bearer, it's a little harder to get more popular traction for the argument. That said, there's always been a if you don't mind, a sort of good conspiracy theory out there uh, on the wings of political discourse that does think the Fed is unconstitutional or does think it's usurping powers that the cons framers gave to the Congress to have control and you know uh, control of the currency in Article One. So there's always been a certain conspiracy theory, and I think that's in part uh, largely because it controls money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it does control the money supply. Uh, and if we want to be a little less conspiratorial about it, you know, this is, these are the most fundamental questions a democracy or among the most fundamental questions a democracy can engage in, right? The levers of the economy, how much growth, right? When do we need to rein in? When do we uh, need full steam ahead? And to give those powers away to the secretive institution with very little transparency, it kind of runs counter to everything we think about accountability in a democratic political system. It kind of runs counter it's, to the, the three branches of government that we learn in, in high school. Cool. Yes. And so I don't want to sound like I'm an end the Fed type of person because right. I'm not. I'm not anywhere near that. But I think there's arguments to be made. And I understand the, the, the two sides here, right? You ask Alan Blinder, who was used to be on the Fed, is now Princeton economics professor, and he says, "Look, the Fed did what they did to the financial crisis was instrumental, right? We would have had our financial Armageddon without the Fed's operations, and we've seen how gridlock Congresses all they can do is get it get in the way. We could not imagine the Armageddon that would have react that would have insult, uh, ensued if the Fed hadn't taken these actions, which everybody's critical of." I, I understand that, but at the other end of the spectrum, right? This is a democratic political system, and we need to have some type of accountability before we delegate all that authority away. And I don't think it's it's, it's an answered question on where do you draw the line between transparency, independence, and accountability. On the other hand, well, as we approach the centennial of the Fed, you've written that the start to the Fed's second century will be interesting, regardless of who takes Bernanke's chair. Why do you write that? So in the aftermath of the financial crisis and in the wake now of the Great Recession and the recovery efforts, uh, the, the Federal Reserve has amassed what is referred to as a $4 trillion uh, balance sheet, right, which pertains to all the bonds of all different types uh, that the Federal Reserve has been buying up to try to lower interest rates, uh, to keep lowering interest rates, to try to stimulate the economy. Because it's quantitative easing. Yes. So QE. QE, so they say. Uh, so the question is, what is the Fed going to do with this ballooned balance sheet? Because the fear amongst some more conservatives than others, but the fear is that if you don't manage this exit from quantitative easing carefully, you're going to unleash inflation, if not hyperinflation. Now, the Fed doesn't seem to be worried about that because they seem to have a set of, you know, macroprudential tools in order them to, to undo their uh, balance sheet very carefully, at least so they say. 
Um, but it's a challenge for the next chair to do it, to retain, maintain consensus about how to do it, to keep markets on board for what and when they want to do it, and to keep congressional criticism to some degree at bay, right? Because the more criticism there is of the Fed, uh, the worse it is for their reputation and thus their confidence in the Fed's ability to, to, to do it correctly. And that's a huge, huge challenge for the incoming chair of the Fed, as will the whole question about regulating uh, banks too big to fail and sort of taking up the Fed's role in the wake of Dodd-Frank to do what we call macroprudential supervision thinking about the financial stability of the of the financial system generally and not just of individual banks. And that's not necessarily something the Fed has great exp uh, experience with. And so that's going to be a work in progress as well. And so looking ahead, you are engaged in a uh, project to write a book about this, right? Yes. Well, we look forward to uh, to seeing that. Um, to, to just broaden our lens uh, as we uh, move toward the end here, let's talk about Congress generally polarization. One of the key questions uh, people are asking that relates to the history of Congress is, is Congress more polarized today than it has been in the past? Well, certainly on the metric of polarization, we, which we typically measure by looking at roll call votes, for better or for worse, on most measures of polarization, we are at historically high levels of polarization, which means which is to say that we have to go back to the late 19th century to find anything like these levels of party polarization. Um, so on that score, uh, absolutely, right? Uh, the parties seem to be at loggerheads, um, first of all, because they disagree with each other ideologically, and second of all, what I think of as strategic disagreement, right? One party disagrees with the other party just because it's the other, <laughs> it's the other party. So anything that President Obama touches – uh, Republicans are opposed to, just as when President Bush touched something, uh, congressional Democrats were opposed to. Uh, and that type of partisan tit-for-tat, right, team play, really exacerbates uh, these historic levels of polarization. Well, Sarah, I think this has uh, been extremely interesting, and I appreciate the historical piece as well. And uh, we look forward to your continued work and, and seeing what you have to say about the Fed and, and Congress and the filibuster. So thank you very much. Excellent. Thanks for having me. After this episode was taped, the Senate changed filibuster rules for some presidential nominations. To learn more about Sarah and her research, visit brookings.edu.